The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. In this episode, we speak to Howard Jacobson, hot on the heels of his new novel, a love story about two 90-somethings in North London's Finchley Road. 90-somethings, Richard. Mm, There you go. There's a subject. (laughs) There's a love story. But first, we turn to another great Iris Murdoch, whose centenary falls this week. Sean, now I'm turning to you as the youngest member Mm. of this panel. What does Iris Murdoch mean to you? Because she was dead before you were reading, pretty much. (laughs) Well, um... I'm Australian, so I, I hadn't actually encountered Iris Burdock. I was aware of her as a sort of enthusiastic reader, but was only aware of her in terms of she'd won the booker once and had never read her. And then I moved to the UK in my early 20s, and it was interesting that the other day we were talking about her and you said that she had sort of fallen out of fashion because the people that recommended Iris Murdoch to me were young women in their 20s, um, particularly the Sea, the Sea and the Bell, which are the two that I have read on their recommendation. My, now, my mum, who was who would have been 10 years, about 10 years younger than her, used to have this, the, the biggest insult she could give you is that you're just like a character out of her Iris Murdoch <laughs> novel. And, well, they and, are awful, aren't they? Well, they, they are, but there was also, there was a sort of thrill of moral horror, I suppose, yeah. that, that middle-class readers like my mum had about her characters, because they just sort of broke all the rules. When I was going back, um, thinking about the novels I read when I was young, things like The Sacred and the Profane Love Machine, which I, I think I probably picked up because of its title. <laughs> I mean, that was in the 70s, so that was fairly late. But she was writing about stuff in the 1960s, very early 1960s, which absolutely did prefigure the breakdown of marital morality, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, because, I mean, it's always couched in terms of betrayal or infidelity, but that's not really what's going on at all, is it? They're just sort of following their passions wherever they lead them, aren't they? They're all very impulsive. Yeah. I I get quite anxious. (laughs) I think that that one of the reasons why, possibly why she dated did date her models are the existentialists the sort of french existentialists or, or beckett whereas somebody like howard jacobson his model is updike and roth and bellow she's coming from a, a different place there's a hilarious column i discovered from back in 2003 by howard jacobson about her which he wrote for the independent and he, he sort of takes her to task for not being able to write sex. And it was at the point when all these revelations were coming out about how she 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 was sort of slept with lots of different people. She was sort of a, a weird sort of anti-glamorous thing about her biography. It was at the point when we knew that she had Alzheimer's. And he said, um, he sort of eviscerated her novels for their sex scenes and, and said, hokum all of it, Mills and Boone for readers of a philosophic bent and as such, yes, quite brilliant. A thinking man's romantic myself. I cannot count the hours of pleasurable excruciation Iris Murdoch's novels have given me the greatest no-sex sex by a person who knows not a thing about it in all literature and the most spectacularly inexpert use of sexual language. <laughs> I mean, and you, you were giggling about her portrayal of sexual relationships, well, weren't was, you, Sean? I was rereading The Bell last night and just, like, everyone's in love with each other and everyone's obsessed with each other and everyone wants to have sex with each other. No one's just sort of being sensible a lot of the time and I think that's why I find it quite nerve-wracking when I read her because... They're very recognisable, but everyone's very heightened. Everyone lives a very heightened life. You could like, say that it's quite similar. It's um, Sally Rooney, avant la lettre, as people might say of that generation. Well, I don't know. I think that with Sally Rooney, there's actually some sort of semblance of reality there. But with, with Iris Murdoch, it kind of feels like there's too much going on a lot of the time. There's too many love triangles and characters and little plot threads. Like, there's a lot stuffed into all of her books. That, that brings us to the thing we were talking about just before, Richard, doesn't it, about how much she was in a relationship with the theatre? 
Yes, no, when I pulled a couple off the shelf myself this morning, the thing that really struck me was how much dialogue there is. Yeah. There's so many, there's pages and pages of people discussing things in this, the most kind of extraordinary way. And maybe that's actually something that connects it with Rooney in that Rooney's big thing is dialogue. Another interesting footnote, um, if we're going to be nerdy about this, is that <laughs> A Severed Head, her 1961 novel, which features incest, abortion, all sorts of things that didn't really get written about much in the novel in 1961, and was described by the novelist William Sutcliffe as probably the best and certainly the weirdest of all the lots of people screwing lots of other people novels. <laughs> <laughs> but more more conventionally, she made a stage play of it with J.B. Priestley, mm. who I wouldn't have thought of being of the same generation at all. And then it went on to be made into a film starring Claire Bloom, Lee Remick and Richard Attenborough. I mean, as well as lots of dialogue, there's also lots of God, isn't there? There's lots of good and evil and the kind of struggle between the two, which also feels relatively old-fashioned these days, mm. I think. And, I mean, uh, the beginning of The Philosopher's Pupil, which is the one I happen to pull off the shelf, opens with a vicious argument in the car between a man and his wife, which turns out to be a sort of attempted murder in the, after a few pages. But the, the rain is, is malignant as it rattles on their car, um, and the windscreen wipers are striving phonetically to wipe it, and there, there's little demonic faces composed of racing raindrops appeared and vanished. I can't imagine a writer at the beginning of the 21st century describing rain as demonic faces mm-hmm. in quite the same sort of way, kind of shot through with God. All the characters seem fairly well off as well. They're kind of yeah. academics and artists and so on. It's kind of fairly rarefied atmosphere in that sense, even though they're having the most extraordinary passion at time, as you say. Well, she was she was a philosopher. She was an Oxford philosopher. And at the same time as she was writing these novels, she also wrote some really interesting essays. And she was in that tradition of literature replacing the church as a sort of secular religion. She wrote a lovely essay, um, which I was just rereading, which was actually published in the same year as A Severed Head, 1961, called Against Dryness. Dryness yeah. in what sense, Claire? She describes dryness as smallness, clearness, self-containedness, the nemesis of romanticism. So she named checks T.S. Eliot, among, among other people. So um, basically Apollo rather than Dionysus, but she's in this sort of terribly <laughs> kind of limited box as if it's bad and wrong. Yeah, but she says this really interesting thing. She says the temptation of art, the temptation to which every work of art yields, except for the greatest ones, is to console. Hmm. A modern writer frightened of technology and in England, abandoned by philosophy, and in France, presented with simplified dramatic theories, attempts to console us by myths and by stories. On the whole, his truth is sincerity and his imagination is fantasy. So she's thinking really profoundly when and putting these profound thoughts into these sort of silly situations, these sort of almost farcical situations. Well, they are like melodramatic to the point of, yeah, it does feel farcical, but then they're so compelling that you, when you sort of finish one, you kind of go oh, that really worked on me. And whether you like that or not afterwards, like, it's like how Howard Jacobson writes about how much he's praising her and damning her at the same time, you know. There, there is something to, to criticise or perhaps not relish when you're reading her, but then there's also something entirely wonderful about her at the same time. Which Richard could be said about Howard Jacobson in a way, couldn't it? There's something, he's also infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe so. I mean, he's returning with uh, Live a Little, which is his latest novel. He's returning slightly more to his natural territory, isn't he? After three novels which have been set on slightly more unfamiliar ground. Jay was a dystopia set after some sort of awful second holocaust. It's never really quite addressed head on. Shylock is My Name is a retelling of The Merchant of Venice in 21st century Cheshire. And Pussy, the one before this latest novel, is a satire on Donald Trump, which he wrote in a kind of fury of disbelief in two months after the election. But 
Live a little is this two-hander with the extraordinary character Beryl Dusenbury of this non-Nigerian force of nature who's living in a mansion flat on the Finchley Road whose en-suites have en-suites. Uh, whereas Shimi Carmeli uh, is a Jewish cartomancer who lives in a flat above a Chinese restaurant on the other side. So, Richard, what exactly is a cartomancer? Oh, he's a, he, he, he tells fortune through the deck of cards. He lays huh. them out and reads them for the, for the delight of the old widows of North London. <laughs> well, here, let's go straight into Howard reading a section from the novel. And this is where we meet Shimmy for the first time. Shimmy Carmelli, erect, unsmiling, deals the cards as though strewing flowers on the grave of an enemy. A red silk handkerchief spills like a splash of blood from his top pocket. The widow Ostropova suppresses a shudder. Such scrubbed, stern, well-manicured fingers he has. She lowers her head to smell their perfume. She is past the age of shame, as he, she imagines, is past the age of embarrassment. But she is wrong about that. In his 91st year, Shimi Carmeli retains the bashfulness of a boy. A man untroubled by memories of childhood, assuredly venerable, confident in his own body, and at ease in the proximity of women's, would not dress as finically as Shimi does. Oil of spikenard, Ostropova guesses, closing her eyes. He shakes his head deliberately. All his actions are deliberate. At ninety, nothing is to be left to chance. The widow is not to be deterred. This time she brings his fingers to her face like flowers. Essence of Calamus? Soap, Shimmy says prosaically, but doesn't mention where he imports his soap from. You were such a flirt, Anastasia, the widow Saffron remarks. Always has been, agrees the widow schoolman. Anastasia Ostropova, unafraid to show her turtle throat, comely with chains of gold, throws her head back and laughs. I will be dead when I'm not. Shimi Carmeli attempts to withdraw his hand from the widow's grasp. If I am to read your cards, in the mock struggle that ensues, the cards are sent flying from the table. Shimi Carmeli stoops to retrieve them. It's a bold action for a man his age. The care with which he lifts his trousers at the knees before he bends is not lost on the widows. It's not agility they admire these days. It's a forethought. The widow Ostropova worries that in redealing the cards he will adversely affect her destiny. They are back exactly where they were, he assures her. You can remember? I remember everything. He isn't speaking figuratively. He truly does remember everything. What he would give not to. How Jacobson, reading an extract from Live a Little. When he came to the studio, I started by asking him if the book began with a pair of opposites, with one character whose memory is slipping away and one who remembers everything. It started with Shimmy, and it started with Shimmy much younger than Shimmy now is, and it was going to be a much more simple knockabout novel of the kind that novelists start thinking about writing when they're in their late 60s or more about incontinence and all the usual thing. And I was enjoying doing that, not knowing where it was going, and then I thought, this is too easy. Mm. This, the, fun's t the fun is coming too easy. I took a pause, um, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, I had no Beryl in my head at all, out of nowhere, she rose like Venus from the waves. 
she just was, she truly was there. Writers do like to be mystical about where their characters come from. I am particularly mystical about where my characters come from because I truly don't know. I knew where he did, I didn't know where she did. And, and then I just saw, she just, just saw, I saw what she looked like, I saw who she was. She isn't based on anybody, I don't know anybody like her. I just saw her and I heard her. Can I put it like this? It was as though I realised all my life I've been in the wrong body. <laughs> You've been waiting for Beryl. Yes. I was, in, I was in the body of a young man when all along what was trying to get out was a very sardonic, sarcastic woman of 90. Oh, she's a fantastic creation. I mean, where, did this, where does this anger, this, this sarcasm come from? She erupted. She erupted fully formed like that. That's why I say like Venus de Milo out of the sea. She is an eruption. And I've been thinking about where that comes from, because in the end, it's not satisfying to keep going around saying, it's a mystery, it's a mystery. Where did Beryl come from? And I'm wondering whether she came out of my frustration, that kind of general frustration at the moment, because we are living in very nervous times. We've got to be careful what we say. I've never had to be so careful what I say and what I write. I have pause, you know, before you can decide whether he, she, he and she, they, that horrible thing, we end up saying they after a, after, a, after a single pronoun, and that's just the start of it. And particularly if you are a man at the moment, there are columns you can't... I've had columns knocked back in the last couple of years. One for The Guardian, as it, mm. it happened. Not offensive columns, just columns that just take another look at something that's reckoned to be what we're, what we're all supposed to think. So I think she erupted out of the oppression of correctness and she erupted as a kind of high priestess of incorrectness, non-correctness. And, and she's defiantly so. I mean, did, did she erupt with her carers, um, euphoria and nastia with her as kind of foils? Fully formed with them. Carers are in my life at the moment, not because I am being cared for yet, but it's getting close, but because... I have a 96-year-old mother living in Manchester, and she has carers. And my wife has a 106-year-old mother who has carers just everywhere. They're just carers swarm around her. My life's job now is to manage the carers, because the management of carers is now a new job in life. There's going to be more and more of this. Mm. There are more and more carers wherever you go. There are parts of North London which are probably made over simply for and by carers. So I've got carers in my mind, and I've seen carers and seen the comedy of carers, because there is a comedy of carers. Part of the comedy of carers being that they don't like one another and they argue according to national boundaries. So the carers from Eastern Europe, of which there are many, don't get on with the carers from Africa, of which there are also many. So that's something else that's going on in our world. There's a subterranean world of embattled carers. So she came with them there and it just was immediately obvious that what she would be like with them, how she would be rude to them, how she would be... Some people would say she's racially prejudiced, but you can't say that about her because she's playing. She's an embroideress. She calls herself the princess. Her real name is Beryl Dusenbury. She's playing with herself. She's inventing herself. She's embroidering her own story. She's embroidering her own sardonic nature. So you never know what's lovely about her. You never know whether she means what she says. To the degree that she's a perfect figure, really, for the novelist himself, herself, themselves. <laughs> I mean, is it partly also just, I mean, it's the pure pleasure of, of the character like that arriving. Is it partly also a defence of the idea of fiction, the idea of making stuff up, the idea of play? Yes, though I didn't, I never put it to myself as overtly as that. But yes, and the joy of writing her was that. It, writing her reminded me of writing at the very beginning when I thought, 
God, can I do this? Do I dare do this? Am I allowed to do this? I'd always thought I was going to be a novelist, but then when the moment comes and you're making things up and it's a, there's an exhilaration, a kind of cheek, what nerve I have. You're a god when you're making it. There is only one god. You're not meant to copy god. You're not meant to remake the universe. And that's what you feel you're doing when you're, when you're writing. And with her, there was that same thing. She can go where few characters can go. And I loved being there. I didn't take her. She took me there. I wonder if also she came as a kind of unconscious answer to Shimmy, who is so very opposite. He's so yeah. very so very controlled. He's so very fearful of what he might be able to say. Yes. Well, once his being able to remember everything came first, mm. because that was the story I wanted to tell. I always, I'm always writing about shame. To a degree, Shimmy is a version of story I've told before, but I like him more than I've liked my earlier versions. But once I had him unable to forget anything, then it was important that she would have to forget things. And anyway, she's likely to at her age. The, the advantage of having and not able to remember things, of course, is that she can keep a diary and she can embroider in, in a way she does these apparently beautiful, voluptuous, sweet, pastoral embroideries, which are in fact savage. <laughs> You know, they contain savage words mm. and blood and skulls and so on. So her fear that she's losing her memory and therefore must retain it all by embroidering it or, or keeping her diaries means that all her story is there much more vividly than it would be if you were just remembering in the normal way. So her diaries was one of the great pleasures. I was delighted when I thought about getting her to write her diaries, particularly as they're diaries which constitute a sort of history of 20th century man, not mankind, men. Mm. Particular her, archetypes who she who she has various encounters with. Yes, she's had a lot of men. She's had many husbands. She doesn't know how many. Many, many lovers. She is quite candid in her descriptions of them. She will talk about anything. She is shameless and unembarrassed and utterly, utterly contemptuous, both of herself for having loved these men and of the men themselves. So she has got to the age she, she is with no respect for any of the men she's married or the children that she's fathered or any of the men she's had affairs with. And then in comes she who is like none of those men he's got no confidence he's got no arrogance he's not had a rich relational or sexual life at all because of what he remembers of himself he's ashamed of himself he thinks he is the things he did as a little boy which are not all that exceptional but they are to him mm. he feels they've defined his life yes they are to him mm. and I had a long conversation with my publisher about that who thought hang on a minute I and others that I know would not think that those things that he've done would explain why. And then I said, well, this here is the difference between a publisher and a writer. You're a publisher. The reason you're not a novelist is because you think you can get over things. The novelist knows you don't get over things. And you don't get over things if you have Shimmy's kind of memory. And I'm very interested in this. For many people, memory is a, it's like a mine shaft. You lower yourself. And down, down you go, and, and the older you get, lower and lower are those memories. And if you've got a good memory, you'll get to the bottom of them. That's not how his memory works. His memory works almost like a spool, a film going round and round his head, which means that it's never gone away. It can come back, and any day in front of his eyes will be that shame. The same shameful moment. The same shameful moment, accompanied by many more, because shames come in swarms. Once, you, once you're ashamed of one thing, you'll be ashamed of almost everything. And poor old Shimmy doesn't have the recourse that I had as a shamed and endlessly mortified man that I could write about it. If you can write about shame, you achieve mastery over it. Look, you think you've humiliated me? Look how I can humiliate myself even more. I am master. I am the master clown of my universe. I organise it, 
I'm in charge. Poor Shimmy doesn't have that. And Shimmy just lives, just backs himself away from life, really. He feels an unnatural man. Not only did he do things that he's ashamed of sexually as a boy, he couldn't help his mother when she was dying. He's squeamish. He's fastidious. He has a an extraordinary bathroom, which is almost like a decontamination cell. And he's in retreat, in retreat from life, which gives him a kind of attraction to the widows who are all after him because he's kept himself clean. The fact that he is so fastidious has led to him watching his clothes all the time. A man has to watch his clothes at that age. Well, a woman too. We all have to watch our clothes at that age. So he's impeccable and spotless. And this gives the impression to the assembled widows of North London who see him walking through on his long walks through the streets and parks of a man who is um, utterly eligible. He's upright, he's tall, he can do up his own flies and he walks without a stick. What more do you want from a man? Is, was that also one of the pleasures, one of the things that felt transgressive as well about writing the novel was that it features characters who are older we don't usually see in, in literary fiction? Yes, once they were there, once Beryl was there, and that meant that for Shimmy to work, he's got to be older too. I thought, this is terrific. I never thought, it was never my intention well before that I'm going to do something for the extremely elderly. Though I, I have had thoughts before about how they're not really well served in fiction, are they? I mean, you think, who, who are they? You think of. Or their stereotypes, or their kind of, or their foils to, for other characters. Foils, to... that's right. In Jane Austen, for example, mm-hmm. how well. Very nice old men, uh, Emma's father, people like that. Mm-hmm. And they're a, t- a moral test. Mm-hmm. Are you able to show the proper forbearance or not? Or they come in at the, with a telling piece of wisdom at the right moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not, you know, I wasn't going to have any of that. <laughs> and I wanted them to be unencumbered. I noticed there was a story in the paper not long ago about. Uh, an elderly woman who was knocked down by a, a motorcyclist in Windsor guarding the royals. And she was never just a woman of 83. She was a pensioner. She was a gran. This gran thing, this mum thing, everybody defined by their nurturing function. These two are not nurturers. He's had no child, couldn't bear the idea of a child. She's had children but she's been very strange about being a mother, and we learn just how strange much later on. So they have this in common without knowing how much they have it in common. They're free of, they're no one's mum, they're no one's grandpop. They are themselves, so they can talk. They've got the glorious freedom of selfishness. They can think about themselves and talk about, make some wonderful characters in You might not want to know either of them. You might not want to share a house with either of them. But they're wonderful company for each other. She's more lively than he is, but he listens. And they listen to each other, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk. Yeah, but you're right that neither of them is kind of attached to family in the kind of conventional way, but family's still at the heart of the novel. Shimmy's relationship with Ephraim, for example, and then the discovery later on of, of of, of, of the boy. True. True, true. It is, yeah, the boy, story. Well, you've got to tell a story. They always want you to tell a story. I never really want to tell a story. I just want to write the sentences. You're right about family. I'm, I'm very strange as a writer in that I'm not capable of imagining a character without imagining his or her parents. I've got by with Beryl because she's come fully formed into the world. Maybe there were no parents. But she does she, feel kind of mythical like that, yes, doesn't she? absolutely. Whereas Shimmy is nothing mythical about Shimmy. <laughs> Shimmy, is, Shimmy has come up the hard way, as it were. He's had a mother and a father. And I like writing about mothers and fathers. I've always liked fictionalising my own mother and, and father. I've written about them in various forms a lot. It's as though I don't understand anybody, or particularly a man, 
until I know what the parents have done. Mm. The parents explain it somewhere or other for me. And this is also a part of the way memory works for me. I see them all the time. I see my, my mother and father, or my father died 20 years ago, but I still see him. My mother is still alive, so of course I see her. And there on this, this loop that I've given Shimmy is between ourselves my loop. Mm. That's the loop in which I see the past constantly. Go. So they're never not there. So I can't conceive of what it's like to not have family not there at any point. And we'll be back with more from Howard Jacobson, including his ongoing battle for comic literature to be taken seriously and on the rise of anti-Semitism in Britain today after this. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Welcome back. Before we hear more from Howard Jacobson in conversation, let's hear him read another extract from the book with Beryl, well into her 90s, and her two carers, a Ugandan woman called Euphoria and her Moldovan night nurse, Nastya. Now that, the princess tells Euphoria, suits you very well. I'm not sure about its appropriateness for helping me to the bathroom, but you could certainly go to the opening of Parliament or meet the Queen in it. Euphoria practices a curtsy. That's what I bought it for, Mrs. Beryl. And where are you anticipating meeting the Queen? Underneath my bed? The Princess's sarcasm is lost on Euphoria. No, Mrs. Beryl, in her house. She offered you a job. No, no, I'm very happy working for you. I'm only going for tea. Having said which, she draws from her floral handbag an official invitation to one of the Queen's summer garden parties. Is that from Primark? the Princess asks. Euphoria looks with consternation at the invitation. Not that, the princess continues. I'm in the bag. Anyway, show me. Euphoria shows the princess her bag. No, not that, the invitation. In her confusion, Euphoria drops the invitation and has difficulty retrieving it. So tight is her skirt. You'd better not drop anything in front of Prince Philip, the princess says. She scrutinises the invitation from the Lord Chamberlain to a garden party at Buckingham Palace with a degree of annoyance. She has herself been invited to Buckingham Palace only four times, and that, given her venerable age and connections, is a paltry number compared to Euphoria's once, allowing that Euphoria has neither venerable age nor connections. And what public service have you performed that explains this invitation, she asks. Euphoria shines with pride. My husband is a fireman. Is this a garden party for firemen? He risked his life saving a baby. So now explain to me why you've come here wearing the dress you mean to see the Queen in. Are you planning to go there after work? It will be a little late for a garden party. I was hoping for your advice, Mrs. Beryl. Nastia says that when it comes to royal protocol, you are the one to ask. Are you telling me that you and that Moldovan trollop sit in my kitchen discussing royal protocol? 
Euphoria covers her face with the invitation from the Lord Chamberlain. Not all the time, Mrs Beryl. Nastia has been listening in to the above conversation from the kitchen. Well, I think you look smart enough to meet Queen, she says, the moment she has a chance to talk to Euphoria on her own. So does Mrs Beryl. No. Mrs Beryl patronise you. You are cheap adventure for her eyes. You are package holiday. That's how the English see black people. She said my dress was beautiful. Yes, for black person. Well, I am a black person. Not in a way you're black person for Mrs Beryl. I have boyfriend reading books about Western people looking down on culture of Eastern people by admiring it. Appreciating us is new form of imperialism. I'm not Eastern. We are all Eastern people to Western people. Well, I'm still wearing this dress for the garden party. You should, but don't let Queen insult you by saying you look nice. You tell her she look nice first. Do you have a message for her? Nastia thinks about it. Tell her days of cultural appropriation over. Euphoria nods, though secretly decides she won't be telling the Queen that. And ask her, Nastia continues, if she has a spare prince I can marry. In order to prove her point about Mrs Beryl's condescension to the exotic, Nastia turns up to work the following week in Moldovan national dress. Mrs Beryl is going to rave about it, she tells Euphoria. How I look, she asks her employer with a twirl. Like shit, the princess replies. Another thread that runs through the novel is a kind of a defence of the idea that literature, that proper literature can be funny. Isn't that a fight you've already won? <laughs> you think that's going to stop me? <laughs> I'm the kind of writer that would never believe it. That's the memory thing, because I can remember when the fight wasn't won. It's there. The fight, the fight not having been won appears on the loop. People say to me, well, you won the Booker Prize, everything has changed. I say no, because the period of not having won the Booker Prize is still there. That will never, ever go away, which makes me, I suppose, morbid and self-obsessed. But I don't mind having to go on fighting the fight. I think the fight for the novel to be funny. It's quite hard. It's harder to be funny, I think, than it was before because people are taking offence all the time. Mm. Or if they're not, you fear that they might be taking offence. And now enters self-censorship. The other thing I have to guard against as I'm writing all the time is not what somebody else might say, but my fear of what somebody else might say. And my fear that maybe I'm stopping finding wicked things as funny as I once did. Maybe I'm thinking, you know, maybe you grow up, Howard. You're past that one. You're not a naughty boy anymore. I was never a naughty boy, let it be said. But I could always have pretended that I was a, I was a naughty boy. And that was the other thing that Beryl gave me. Beryl gave me a pass from that. You a know, permission a, to a just... A live pass, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. It's, because it's, she's a woman, you see. A woman can say anything she likes about men. She can do that history of male ineptitude. And the, I, I, I hope they're very funny. Uh, I wanted them to be very funny. And I've listened, to me, I've listened to many women. That part of Beryl, I can see where some of it's come from over years of talking to women. Women's contempt for men particularly for men as erotic beings. The women I've known are never more, never funnier than when they're describing men. So I gave her that. But a man couldn't do that. Mm. There could be no male Beryl who could write about all the women that he's made love to and lived with and married over the years. You couldn't do it. 
think of someone like Saul Bellow, mm. who was extreme, wonderfully funny about, uh, Philip Rother was good about it too, nastier, but Saul Bellow about, you know, how a woman puts on makeup or how, how a woman prays, how a woman worships a woman, a particular wife. It's very, very funny. Unacceptable now. This is called misogyny. Ah, but it's, it's, it's perhaps a, a reflection of the kind of imbalances of power, isn't it? It's yes. kicking down rather than kicking yes. up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so power has changed, so Beryl can get away with it. Yeah. And another thing that perhaps has changed, I don't know if it's changed the way you approach writing or how it feels when you're writing, is the unstoppable, it seems, rise of anti-Semitism in the UK, which is something that we kind of thought was something that would never come back in quite the same way. Hard to believe so soon after the Holocaust. Mm. In a way, I've kind of, in fiction anyway... I, don't, I might just have used this up because I wrote a novel called Jay, which many people think is my best novel, but I think what they mean by that is it's my most serious, overtly tragic novel. And Jay is about imagining a country, might be this one, it might not, in which... After. They've gone. The non-Jewish world has finally got its wish. It's a long-held wish. It's no exaggeration to say this. It's been a long-held wish in parts of the world, in some countries and in some groups, that Jews just go away. The fascinating thing is that that history shows that where Jews finally did go away, as in Spain and Portugal after the Inquisition, anti-Semitism didn't Mm. stop. It Mm. didn't stop. Shakespeare was writing The Merchant of Venice, and Marlowe was writing The Jew of Malta in a London that had no Jews. It generally felt there may have been a dozen or so hiding around. Shakespeare may have met one, more likely not to have met one, more likely not to have known he'd met one, even if he had. But still, and I'm not saying Shakespeare was anti-Semitic, of course not. Shakespeare can do nothing, feel nothing wrong, impossible. But the fact that there was a market for that work which played to anti-Semitic responses in the audience when there were no Jews there, makes you wonder if anti-Semitism actually predates Jews. Mm-hmm. Well, it's nothing to do with actually meeting an actual Jew, is it? Nothing to do at all. There, was an, there is a need, oh, it's been said a thousand times, nothing new, there is a need to hate mm-hmm. the other. Mm-hmm. Nothing for the last 2,000 years beats the Jews for being the, the, the Jew is the perfect other. And it was, it was Christianity that did that except that there are signs that jews were not always liked in other parts of the world but it was Chris- it was christianity christianity did it howard jacobson there talking about his new book live a little which is out now fascinating to hear howard suggests that it would be impossible to write about the inadequacies of women in the way that beryl skewers the inadequacies of men do you think he's right richard as i think i said in the interview it's all about the power dynamics we're living in a gendered world where men are broadly speaking on top and so women being mean about men is punching up whereas men being mean about women is punching down and it's just therefore sort of awful (laughs) the interesting thing in a way is not that men are still on top as they always have been but that we're now saying it and people like howard are now allowing it to affect what they feel they can address isn't it it's interesting that in that interview he made a reference to the shift in power dynamics which sort of mean that women have greater agency these days than perhaps before and so they're able to sort of criticize more vocally how they're portrayed in literature but they also have greater license in when they are writing in how they write about men and it's interesting because at the same time Richard is making the point that we're living in a patriarchal society and so women are punching up when they criticize men so it's this interesting thing that Howard sort of considers that perhaps women are in charge these days and this is why we're seeing a shift in what writers like him are writing whereas Richard is also saying at the same time that men are still very much in charge it's just that women have a little bit more agency 
And I think they're both right. I think you can. That's concurrent. Neither of them are wrong. It can be both perfectly believable at the same time. It's a moment of transition, as you say, isn't it? We're not. Yeah. We're not there yet. And it, it's funny because what, like, what Howard calls wickedness in that comment that he made about uh, what he used to find funny, but then he also refers. You know, he says bellow is funny to him, but it's also called misogyny. I think he said that's the thing because you can still laugh at misogyny, but it really sort of depends. Mm. I don't think anyone reads Bellow, Roth and Updike in the same way that people did read them when they were first writing. So you're laughing at the misogynist, not at the the subject of the misogyny. You can still read a Roth novel and find them funny, but you might finish that book and go, that was a misogynist book. Could you write it now? Could that be written now? Well, of course it could be written now, but you just have to deal with the criticism that comes with it. And Roth probably wasn't criticised as much as he could have been when he was writing those books. And he possibly wouldn't have wanted to write them if he got that criticism at the time. But that's the only thing that's changed. And it's sort of interesting when writers try to make this case that they're somehow being censored. It's like, you can still do absolutely whatever you want. You just might get some feedback afterwards. Yeah. So it's it's as much as anything, it's a power balance has shifted. Yeah. There is a There is an answering voice now, whereas there wasn't an answering voice. And even not on gender lines, but just, just generational. You know, Howard is of that generation where... He would really admire writers like Roth and Bellow, and he's perfectly right to do so. But then I read a writer like Updike, for example, who's often called out for misogyny and poor writing of women. And I just think he's unbelievably stupid when he's writing about women. I think he's a great writer, but some of the things he's written about women. Do you remember that that passage he wrote about a woman on the toilet? where he said that she had to wait for minutes for her urine to come out because inside was a maze, whereas men are more direct, so they can just urinate at a moment's notice. And it's just like, what the hell am I reading? (laughs) People hold up this author as this, like, great author. And I don't think that that's necessarily those sorts of instances in writing were necessarily criticised at the time. But right, reading it now, I'm just like, what the hell would were these people writing? Well, six of Iris Murdoch's novels have just been reissued by Vintage to celebrate the centenary. Sean, uh, who are the introductions by? Uh, so we have uh, the American writer Garth Greenwell, uh, Daisy Johnson, uh, who was nominated for the Booker last year, uh, Badisha, Sarah Perry, Charlotte Mendelssohn and Sophie Hanna. This is the generation who recommended her to you. Daisy Johnson was the one that uh, got me to read The Bell, I think. Next week, we'll be speaking to Ocean Vuong to find out how a Vietnamese refugee has written what many are calling the great American novel. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or leave a comment on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Ian Chambers. Goodbye and thanks for listening. from The Guardian. Just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.